If you'd like to open your Bible or navigate on your tablet or device, James 2, verses 1 through 13 is our text. The topic, James denounces the partiality being shown to wealthy visitors wearing fine clothing and gold rings. The title of our message, Gold-Fingered. Let's have a word of prayer. Hold that laughter. I have something to explain later that's going to make you feel bad. But anyway, (laughs) let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning. We appreciate so much your love for us, Lord, that's revealed on Calvary's cross where Jesus Christ died so that he could pay for the sins of the world and my sins in particular. We thank you that Jesus rose from the dead that there is an incontrovertible fact that he is alive today and we know that you're coming back, Lord, for us. In the meantime, we want to hold the faith in joy and with uh, an excitement, Lord, that shares you with others. To that end, I pray that you would teach and instruct us from your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Have you heard this quoted? The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. It was popular when I was first saved, or at least that's when I first heard it from the pulpit. It's been attributed to Augustine, but that seems highly unlikely. In the 5th century AD, hospitals weren't exactly places you'd go to get better. Medical care wasn't like it is today. Stop that right now. The true source of the quote seems to be Abigail Van Buren better known as advice columnist Dear Abby. It was published in newspapers on March 29, 1964 in response to a question from two people with troubled consciences because they were living together in sin. Dear Abby told them to go to church because that was the place where sinners would be welcomed not to continue in their sin, but to find healing through salvation. She called church a hospital for sinners. It's a modern metaphor to suggest how we ought to behave as believers towards those who come needing spiritual help. As modern metaphors go, it's better than some of the more recent ones. A professor at a Christian college wrote, I asked several pastors to try creating their own metaphors for what church ought to be. Their suggestions varied from a spiritual Starbucks and a continuation high school to a cheers-like bar where everybody knows your name and they're always glad you came. Recently in Texas, the church service became a sort of sports bar. The Friendship West Baptist Church projected the Cowboys' 27-17 win over the Ravens to its congregation, prompting the reporter to comment, it left nearly the entire place thinking about Ezekiel Elliott instead of Ezekiel 3.10. James suggests a metaphor here in chapter 2. A set of related words jump out as you as you read verses 1 through 13. Judges, courts, guilty, judged, and judgment. The word law is used throughout these verses as well. James was comparing the meetings of the believers to a court proceeding, but not in a good way. He was pointing out that the way they were treating visitors was the way that corrupt judges treated people in their earthly courtrooms, preferring the wealthy while oppressing the poor. The believers were doing it by looking on the outward appearance and thereby showing partiality to those who had the trappings of wealth and social status. 
We may not be doing that, at least not obviously, but we all have a natural tendency to form judgments based on outward appearances. And James says that can make us judges with evil thoughts and transgressors of the law. These verses serve as a reminder that our gathering should be places where mercy triumphs over such judgment. And that begins with each of us looking beneath the surface with the aid of the Holy Spirit and with what James calls the royal law of love. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you can quit looking at people like a judge does. And number two, you can keep loving people like Jesus does. Let's take a look first of all at quit looking at people like a judge does. Now, one of the commentators I read titled this whole section, The Case of the Short-Sighted Usher. You know what? I got to thinking, it's not easy ushering, and I give props to you guys that are on our usher crew. I tried ushering, and I just was no good at it, so I became the pastor. (laughs) That's actually true, is the sad thing. In my research about ushering, though, however, I came across a set of uniform hand signals taught by the National United Church Ushers Association of America. Who knew, right? Maybe we'll send our guys there, but in the meantime, I thought I'd do a little usher training this morning. So please indulge me while I do that. I'm looking at some photographs from their website so that I can get this right. So uh, available seats. The usher in charge asks all the aisle ushers to signal how many free seats they have. And here is the signal. So then the aisle ushers answer, of course, one, two. And by the way, they all have gloved hands. Three, more than three, or none. Okay, so that's fairly simple. So if you see me go like this, that's... (laughs) Commence the offering. The usher in charge signals the offering with a nod and a slight spreading of the hands. All right, so I should have done that, but I, I, didn't, I hadn't done the training yet. Doorkeeper signs. Bending an arm through the partially closed door, the doorkeeper signals why those outside must wait before entering the sanctuary. Prayer, the reading of the word, other. (laughs) And then this, very important in today's culture, distress signal. (laughs) I know you think I'm kidding, but this is highly trained ushers that are, this isn't easy, so... Guys, if you see me do this, this is the signal for I'm adjusting my glasses. But if I go like this, it is on. On. All right. There may not have been ushers in the gatherings James was describing. We have a tendency to see the church the way we have church. Actually, the word for assembly is synagogue, and there's a big debate among scholars as to whether this was a synagogue service that Christians attended or something else, but that's neither here nor there. They probably didn't have ushers. The entire congregation is being addressed, not just the short-sighted usher. They were prone to showing partiality. So verse 1, my brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. James was writing to the first generation of believers 
They were mostly Jews who had become born again. They were being scattered throughout the world on account of severe persecution. Hold the faith is a way of describing what faith looked like in their grasp or in their practice. These believers were holding their faith for others to see in a way that was unbecoming. They were showing partiality, which James will illustrate in a moment. Before he does, he gives them one word describing Jesus that by itself could solve this problem. It is the word glory. James calls Jesus the Lord of glory. As we will see, they were being affected by the temporary glory that is displayed by a wealthy individual. Flashy clothing, gold rings on every finger. By the way, the word for gold rings, if you study the original languages, is literally gold-fingered. And so that's where I got the title. I have to give props to the Greek language. Uh, If you're going to be attracted to glory... Just keep your eyes on Jesus, who not only sits in glory, but is returning in glory. So if glory is your thing, Jesus is the person you want to look at. Plus, the Lord says he's changing you and I from glory to glory spiritually. So why would I need to be attracted by flashy clothes and gold rings? Plus, he's one day going to complete his work in us, and we will each be glorified in a body that is fit for eternity. C.S. Lewis said, I would rather be what God chose to make me than the most glorious creature I could think of. So there's no reason to get distracted by the fading false glory of this world. If you want glory, it's glory galore with Jesus Christ. And so that could have solved the problem, but James goes on to describe it in detail. Let's see exactly what he means by partiality. Verse 2, if there should come into your assembly... A man with gold rings, a gold-fingered man in fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Two men arrive simultaneously needing to be seated. The poor man isn't turned away. He isn't described as being mistreated. It was not uncommon in the first century assemblies to stand or to be seated on the floor. And so nothing terrible is being done to the poor man. Their problem was with how they reacted in comparison to the man of wealth and status. If there was only one decent seat left, they'd give it to him based on his outward appearance. Verse 4, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Out in the world, this kind of partiality is practiced and it's expected. I don't even have a problem with it. I often use the example of the private club at Disneyland, Club 33. One Christmas season, Pam and I had ticketed reservations to see the annual candlelight procession that that Disney puts on on Main Street. As we were waiting in line, some rude guy started shouting to a cast member, telling him and everyone else that he was a member of Club 33. Well, he was immediately whisked away to their special reserve seating. Now, I, don't, I honestly don't have a problem with that because he paid maybe ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 to become a member of that private club, and he pays dues on a monthly basis, and he had to wait 25 years for a membership. And so that's the world. I, I'm not in that caliber. I'm somebody who is blessed to be able to even go to Disneyland. You know, I think, oh, you know, why get down? There, you know, a lot of people, it's, Disneyland's expensive. Do you realize that? I don't go as often as I used to, but I still go. And so I'm okay with the, that in the world. That's the way the world works, but it's not the way the church should work. 
And we need to leave that at the door. That's what James is saying. So he introduces his metaphor. He says they had become judges with evil thoughts. He wasn't calling them judgmental. He was comparing them to unjust, worldly, corrupt, bribe-loving judges. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? He calls them my beloved brethren. James has a reputation for being in your face with his stinging rebukes. It's not a fair assessment of James. He loves them too much to overlook attitudes and actions that will tear them down rather than build them up. So yeah, does he rebuke? Does he reprove? Is he uh, direct? Sure. Why? Because these are serious issues that people should not continue in. And somebody needs to do it. God hasn't only chosen the poor of this world. Jesus is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. It's just that the wealthy and those with status seem uninterested in the gospel. They trust instead in the world and its fleeting riches. Even Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, not because he can't believe or that he's on some different plane, but because they don't see the need. They don't feel their spiritual need the way that the poor often do. True riches should always be measured by a spiritual standard, not a physical one. A believer is rich in faith, meaning he or she has access now to all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We're told that believers are heirs of the coming kingdom, which includes the thousand-year kingdom on the earth and on into eternity. We are going to inherit those kingdoms. Those who love Jesus, well, that's another way of describing anyone who's born again. It's a title, like Christian or believer. You could say to somebody, oh, I'm a Christian, or you could say, oh, I'm somebody who loves Jesus, same thing. My dad used to call us born-agains with a, in plural. He goes, oh, you born-again. See, he came from a Catholic heritage, and so we were the born-agains. Since Jesus promised us this wealth, it's secure for us now and in heaven, We should be, therefore, living on the earth, influenced by eternity. So displays of temporary glory really shouldn't attract us. Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts. They dishonored the poor man not by mistreating him, but by preferring the rich man. Again, they weren't saying, hey, you grovel on the ground. They were saying, they, they were treating him the way they would normally treat others, and so that's a plus, but they were preferring the rich man. James doesn't say they should have ushered the poor man to the best seat and mistreated the rich man. That would still be showing partiality to the poor. They must treat all equally without looking on the outward appearance. In Galatians 3.28, it's an interesting verse. Paul the Apostle said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Now, I've told you this before, but in the Bible, the Bible differentiates between Jews and non-Jews. Jews Jews or what we would call Gentiles, sometimes called Greeks, but Jew and Gentile. You know, when you're filling out forms or online surveys and they say, you know, what's your race? And they give you a bunch of things. If you did this on a Jewish form, it would just be, are you a Jew or are you a Gentile, period? That's it. Those are the only two categories that there are. So Paul says there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. Now, let me qualify that verse. It doesn't mean there are no distinctions 
Men and women, for example, are distinguished in the New Testament. Each have certain distinct roles and responsibilities in the home and in the church. What this verse is saying is that we are all rendered equal as believers in Jesus Christ. It means God shows no partiality to men over women or to women over men or to Jews over Gentiles, or to Gentiles over Jews, or to slaves and their masters. God is incapable of being partial. He is the same to everyone. He loves all equally. And so James pointed out to them that the rich, as a class of people, were the ones leading the persecution against them. And so not only were they showing partiality the way God does not, but they were being illogical. Why would you prefer the people that are sending you out into the world as refugees? And so verse 7, don't they blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? I wonder what that noble name was. We're tempted to say Christian, but that's probably inaccurate. James was writing only 10 or 15 years after the day of Pentecost. In the book of Acts, we read that, quote, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, in the Gentile church of Antioch, much later than James was writing. Now, in Acts chapter 9, we see Saul, who would become Paul, seeking and receiving the authority to persecute Messianic Jews. He refers to them as the way. And so the church was first known as the way. Whether that was the name or not James was referring to, I don't know. He refers to them as noble. It's a shorthand for rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. So if you're rich in faith and you're going to inherit the kingdom of God, you're part of the nobility. You're already way beyond the glory that any man or woman might have in this world. Now, I ran across this personal application of the text, uh, so let's take this to heart. This author says, let us test ourselves then on this important subject of partiality. Do we show more kindness to those of our own race than those of other races? Are we more kindly disposed to the young than to the old? Are we more outgoing to good-looking people than to those who are plain or homely? Are we more anxious to befriend prominent people than those who are comparatively unknown? Do we avoid people with physical infirmities and seek the companionship of the strong and healthy? Do we favor the rich over the poor? Do we give the cold shoulder to foreigners, those who speak our language with a foreign accent? As we answer these questions, remember the way we treat the least lovable believer is the way we treat Jesus. And that's according to Matthew 25, verse 40. Our assemblies should never be comparable to courtrooms where corrupt judges sit in judgment over others. How do we overcome our natural tendencies to sit in judgment? Well, in verses 8 through 13, you keep loving people like Jesus does. The headline read, Judge Joe Brown released on his own recognizance. Judge Joe Brown, one of those TV judges, a real judge, but he's got his program. Well, apparently, well, let me read it to you. Judge Joe Brown was released on his own recognizance Monday after he was charged with contempt of court and sentenced to five days in jail. Brown was sentenced for reportedly being disorderly in front of a magistrate Monday in a juvenile court where he was representing a woman who was accused of a crime. And so he was there acting as an advocate. He got out of control and he was, uh, you know, held in contempt of court and released on his own recognizance. Now, you've seen enough lawyer shows to know what own recognizance means. When a person is granted release on their own recognizance, or OR, 
No bail money is paid to the court. No bond is posted. The suspect is merely released after promising and writing to appear in court for all upcoming proceedings. In other words, they're trusting you to, uh, to do what you're supposed to do. Now, James just suggested that his beloved brethren were acting like judges. You might say they were in contempt of heaven's court. In these next verses, they're like judges released on their own spiritual recognizance, and they should judge themselves instead of judging others. And so verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. Now the metaphor of judges and judging suggested to James that he talk more about God's law. Jews were all about the law of Moses and trying to keep it. In their analysis, they had identified a total of 613 commandments. These included 248 positive commandments to perform certain acts and 365 negative commandments to abstain from certain acts. And so we talk about the Ten Commandments, and so would the Jews. But if you read the entire Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures, they identified more than just Ten Commandments. They identified 613. That was the number that they had arrived at. And since that was a lot to remember, they were always seeking the one greatest commandment, the one that, if kept, would overrule all the others. And this was a matter of constant debate among the rabbis. It was therefore only a matter of time before they asked Jesus the, uh, which was the greatest commandment. And that exchange is recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew 22, it says, Then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Now, why doesn't James mention loving the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind? Well, he did, actually, back in verse 5, when he referred to them as those who love the Lord. They were loving the Lord with heart, soul, and mind. His focus here is on loving their neighbor as themselves. He says it's a royal law. It's the supreme summary of the entire Old Testament, and it's given directly by the king to his subjects, so I'd say that it's royal. Love your neighbor as yourself, and by default... You keep every other law. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to honor your parents. You're not going to murder or commit adultery or steal from your neighbor. You won't bear false witness against your neighbor. And you will not covet anything of your neighbors. So it's very simple, right? You can memorize the Ten Commandments and say, well, I can't go out and murder anybody today. Or you could just love everybody the way Jesus loves them, and you, you won't want to murder anybody. That's the whole idea. And so it's, it's a summary. It's an overruling of the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you're wondering exactly who is your neighbor, it's effectively everybody, not just folks you know or you like or folks who are good to you. The Jews tried to skate on that one. They asked Jesus at another time, hey, so who's your neighbor? And they had taught through their rabbis that your neighbor was somebody who was a fellow Jew who you liked. And so somebody who is easier to love. And so Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. He said, whose neighbor are you? And so effectively, when it says love your neighbor, he means this is the overruling principle of your life. You are to love others as yourself. Now, to show partiality is a violation of the royal law. He says, if you show partiality, verse 9, you commit sin. 
and you're convicted by the law as transgressors. Sin is a lack of conformity to the will of God. It's a failure to meet his standards. And transgression is the breaking of an actual known law. If there had been a debriefing after the services that morning, the day the usher showed partialities, this is what James would have said. He would have gathered them together, and he would have said, guys, great job taking the offering, (laughs) but when you showed partiality to the rich man, guys, that is sin. He didn't just say, we don't want to do that anymore. It's not seeker-sensitive. Uh, we're going to get a reputation or anything like that. He said, guys, that was sin. And so what do you do with sin? You repent of it and you don't do it anymore. And so I, I like James. We all think we like people to be honest with us, right? We say that, be honest with me. You're ugly. What? <laughs> don't be that honest with me. I meant be honest with me in a way that builds me up. I don't do much counseling anymore. People don't want to talk to me. (laughs) After 30 years, you garner a reputation. I think I told this story. I have a few minutes. I'm going to tell a story. I was in a a business the other day, and uh, the business owner came out. He's a Christian, and we were talking. He goes, hey, I ran into somebody the other day who knows you. I go, yeah. And he goes, yeah. They said, that Gene, he's so, you know, harsh. I thought, oh, thank you for this story so far. I'm really, it's making my day so far. (laughs) I said, really? And he goes, yeah. I said, I said, you're not harsh. You just come across that way because you speak the truth. So thanks a lot. I, just, <laughs> I walked away totally defeated after I paid him for the services that I rendered, you know. Loser. Here's a signal for you. But uh, anyway, I don't know. I do. I, I'm, when I'm in counseling, I'm like everybody else. I'm thinking, Lord, I don't want to say this. Are you going to make me say this? Please don't make me say this. You're in sin. What? You are in sin. Read my lips. Well, you don't have to go that far. (laughs) That's just the beginning, buddy. (laughs) I mean, so James, you know, he's the guy. He's honest with you. But you're his beloved brethren. He loves you. You can't continue in this kind of sin and think it's not going to have an effect on your walk with the Lord. He says in verse 10, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, that guy's guilty of all. Now, remember, James was writing to save Jews. They were used to certain laws being more heavily weighted than others. The the very question, what is the great commandment, separates commandments into greater and lesser. I had a similar experience growing up Roman Catholic. Those of you who were Roman Catholic, you remember there were certain mortal sins which were far more serious than others which were called venial sins. I remember asking a question one time in catechism and the teacher saying, no, you have to confess all of your mortal sins. If you forget some venial sins, they're covered by absolution, but not mortal sins. Those have to be confessed. So there was this big divide between mortal sins and venial sins. This way of thinking about sin results in a person overlooking the severity of sin. It weights sin so that if I don't commit any of the big ones... I feel pretty okay about myself. It fosters environment within which so-called lesser sins take hold. Now, admittedly, I was a kid, but I understood that I had to go to confession and I had to confess something. They, I, they pretty much knew I was a sinner. And so I couldn't just go and say, it's been you know, a week since my last confession, and hey, I'm sinless. 
I didn't have any mortal sins, but my venial sins. And then I realized, well, lying is a venial sin. And so I'm going to lie about how many venial sins I committed, and it'll be covered by absolution. So I'm sinning in the confessional, but it's okay because I'm covered as long as I didn't murder anybody, which I'm pretty sure I didn't up to that point. So, man, I had it gone. Well, I, I swore a couple of times, just a couple. Yeah, a couple of times. I, I took five cents from my, you know, my classmate. Oh, yeah. Anything else? No. All right. Go say whatever you're going to say and you're covered. And so that's what it does. Maybe it was just me, but I think when you wait sin, you have a tendency to wake up in the morning and think, I'm doing pretty good. I got these other things. They're just minor issues. And so James says, hey, showing partiality, guys, that's sin. And he's going to compare it to some pretty big sins right here. He says, verse 11, for he who said don't commit adultery also said don't murder. Now, if you don't commit adultery but you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. Al Capone. Notorious Chicago mobster or a famous Italian, depending on your perspective. (laughs) Terrible guy. Terrible guy. I'm sorry. I just, I repent. Architect of the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. They could never get any charges against him to stick until they got him on tax evasion in 1931. It wasn't murder or racketeering. It wasn't big crime, it was little crime. Now, I'm not minimizing tax evasion, but, you know, I'd rather be a tax evader than a murderer. And so that's the point. If you're guilty of breaking the law, you're guilty of breaking the whole law, and you're going to be penalized for it. Why did James choose murder and adultery? I'm not sure, except that I'm guessing his beloved brethren, along with us, would rank them as much worse than showing partiality. The idea here is kind of a shock effect. It's like, guys, you're in sin, like murdering somebody or committing adultery. Really? Because I showed partiality to a rich man? Yeah, it's pretty bad. You know why it's bad? Why it's really bad? Because it portrays God as being partial. As if God is drawn to the rich man. As if God wants to save the rich man and doesn't care about the poor man. And it would do the same thing in reverse. If you dissed the rich man and and exalted the poor man, we need to portray God as the one who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so showing partiality... Not a minor sin at all. It's a major, major stumble. Verse 12. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. And we said in our last study in chapter 1 that the law of liberty means Jesus kept the law perfectly and fulfilled it while on the earth. As a result, when we are saved, we're no longer subject to the penalties of the law. And more importantly, we are endued with power in the person of the Holy Spirit to walk as new creatures. We are at liberty. We are free to walk according to God's will for our lives. We're given a new nature. It's a divine nature that defaults to keeping the royal law as long as we yield to the Holy Spirit. Now, we find, however, still within us what is called the flesh, a propensity to satisfy our appetites in excessive evil and sinful ways. And so we have this struggle. Thus, what James is saying is, here's how you judge yourself. You can show partiality, 
or you can show impartiality. The choice is yours. The choice is yours. That's what James is saying. You're, def- you're, you're giving into the flesh by showing partiality. You need to follow the perfect law of liberty by which you are now judged, which is to show impartiality. And so we're on our own recognizance and should judge ourselves rather than become judges of others. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. William MacDonald writes and he says, verse 13 must be understood in the light of the context. James is speaking to believers. There's no question of eternal punishment here. That penalty was paid once for all at Calvary's cross. Here, it is a question of God's dealing with us in this world as his children. If we do not show mercy to others, we are not walking in fellowship with God and can expect to suffer consequences of a backslidden condition. The consequences of a backslidden condition are God's discipline. In other words, like any good father, God would rather show us mercy than to have to discipline us. To quote MacDonald again, quote, The general idea seems to be that if we show mercy to others, the discipline which might otherwise fall on us will be replaced by mercy. Now, I was thinking about courts and courtrooms, and I was remembering how justice is portrayed outside a courtroom with the scale, the balances, blindfolded. Justice is blind. A blindfolded judge cannot show partiality on the basis of wealth or status or ethnicity. Theoretically, the judge doesn't know anything about the person and is able to render a just and fair, impartial judgment. In our case, if we are blindfolded by the royal law, we will be free from judgment towards others and ready instead to show them God's mercy. Mercy has been defined as not getting what you deserve from God, which is death and hell, since all fall short of his glory. And so we need to be blindfolded with the royal law. Guys, I, maybe you don't, and, and maybe I'm, you know, going to say something I'll regret, but I actually have a really hard time with this. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people do in our culture, and I think if you look in the culture, you see it, most everybody does. It is so hard to not immediately judge people when you first meet them, based on the categories that I mentioned earlier. Age, ethnicity, race, uh, you know, body type, whatever it might be. It's worse that I grew up in a, a remarkably bigoted home, uh, I mean, just incredible. Someday I'll tell you some of those stories when I'm not employed here anymore. Uh, but uh, it's it just one of those things. And so, uh, and, and I mean, it's hard. This is something I think that we really need to think about and defer to and say, hey, you know, since I have the flesh and my flesh, you know, is always given to this. You know, you look at people and you, you know, you kind of do, I've got, you know, transition lenses, so I have to look up like that. But, you know, you're just, you're just making judgments on people. And, uh, it, and James says, hey, you need to realize that you do that, not do that, and become impartial uh, by having this royal law as your blindfold. Now, like any metaphor we might suggest, the hospital breaks down somewhat. Here's why. No one wants to live in a hospital permanently. You want to be released. In fact, you can't wait to get out of the hospital. If you go to Adventist Health today, there isn't some guy on the fourth floor who lives there. He doesn't get up in the morning and take a shower and brush his teeth and go to work and come back for lunch. 
have the nurse bring him lunch, then goes back to work, come back for dinner, and then, you know, watch TV and go to bed. Nobody lives there. And as far as I can tell, no one wants to be there. I, do you want to be in the hospital? No, your goal is to get out of the hospital. So it breaks down. But I think if we understand that from time to time, we all need healing from some acute spiritual condition, or there is still some chronic spiritual condition that we're dealing with as outpatients, then the hospital works somewhat as an extra biblical metaphor. And so as we close, our assemblies ought to be mercy hospitals to those needing hope and wholeness, believer and non-believer alike. And for that to happen, you and I have to hold the faith out as impartial, showing that God loved everyone. This is my sign for impartiality, by the way. (laughs) Ushers. No, it's not the offering sign. It's not the second offering sign. Uh, but anyway, I've ruined my conclusion. Now, my emotional conclusion is gone because of you jokers in the back. Ushers, remove those two guys. 